0: Hey folks, welcome back to the Climbing Business Journal podcast. I'm Holly Chen. I'm a contributing writer at the CBJ and I'll be your host in today's episode. With the Climbing Business Journal podcast, we hope to empower and inspire professionals in the climbing industry. Today's guest is Louis Anderson, a setter who needs no introduction, but we're going to introduce him anyway for the listeners who may be new to route setting. Louis has been heavily involved in the U.S. setting industry since its beginning. Setting since 1987, Louis is also a route developer, hold shaper, and owns the 10 Sleep Rock Ranch in Wyoming. Nowadays, Louis is known for hosting advanced setting clinics all over the country, new gym and competition setting consultations, and manages the popular route setting competition, the Setter Showdown. Before we begin, a word from our sponsors, without whom CBJ and this podcast would not be possible. True Blue is the only auto belay with magnetic braking, they are proud to be the official auto belay of USA Climbing, and True Blues can be found on climbing walls across the world. Their one-of-a-kind no-delay belay program will automatically ship you a ready-to-hang True Blue before your current one is due for service. Learn more at HeadRushTech.com. Butora has been building comfortable, high-performance footwear since 2014. New for 2023 is Butora's take on approach shoes with two new models, the Musai and the Hexa, both are great for approaches and route setting. They will be available soon at ButoraUSA.com. The first thing I want to touch on in this episode today is in your decades of working in the route setting industry, what are some of the biggest evolutionary changes you witnessed the industry go through, for better or worse?
1: And primarily the setting industry, I assume, right? Yeah. I think primarily there's first of all there's a lot more setters. It's actually a something that people are recognized as doing when I first started doing it it was just kind of how we got a free membership. You know, there was no real trade craft necessarily. And then I think the second thing was the gyms are just much larger now. Popularity of climbing has increased. The general public knows what it is and and has some One or two degrees of separation away from climbers, so I think that the industry now is really ripe for growth. A lot more of what we're doing is recognized and starting to be supported. I think that we have a long ways to go yet down that road, but it's just a lot more mainstream now in the climbing world than what the climbing gyms when I first started setting.
0: What is one of the biggest wins you think the setting industry has achieved in all of these years?
1: I think. Some standardization, you know. I think people are looking a lot more at creativity uh, in what they put on the wall. There's a lot better understanding of body mechanics and movement, and it's not just putting small holes really far apart to make something hard. We've realized that there's lots of other ways that you can control difficulty. I think that, to one degree, uh, just more of a scientific approach, I guess, to setting. But I think also it's just become a lot more accommodating and open to folks of different backgrounds before it was just the, whoever the stronger climber was in the gym at the time is probably who would be setting and primarily those setters would set for themselves and maybe the core group of friends and there wasn't really a huge effort to make it accommodating for people that didn't fit their box and nowadays you know obviously we're seeing ranked beginners that come into the gym and spend good money for a membership and you know they're happy climbing whether it's five nine or, or v0 all day long and that's just not what the Gym environment was back then. I think also, if you were to look around at the community of setters working back then, it was a bunch of you know, white guys that were pretty strong. And I'm glad to see that that's starting to change.
0: In addition to you know catering to a much wider group of audiences on climbing gym, what do you think that diversity in a setting crew is bringing to industry?
1: Well, I think that there's a lot of things. First of all, the climbing industry primarily we're selling a product. You know, a lot of us, back from my generation, looked at it as training for outdoor climbing. And that's still certainly a component of it. But I think anymore, um, we're talking about a big business. You know, We're selling an alternate fitness program to going to a weightlifting gym or something like that. A lot of the folks that go to the climbing gym as well never climb outdoors. They don't really care about training for their project at wherever their outdoor crag is. They want to go there and have a good time with their friends. It's more social. I think having... People on the setting team that maybe different gender, different color, uh, different background socially, or, or so many different tangents. We could go off on that. I think people seeing someone that they can relate to, someone that looks like them, someone that they feel represented in the industry and on the setting team in the gym makes them feel a bit more welcome. I'm sure it would. It does for me.
0: Yeah, I like that. As a, you know, smaller and non-white climber myself, it's one of the reasons how I got into industry is seeing someone else who looks like me, climbs like me and thinking, "Hey, that might be a job that I can do." I don't think right. if it without the initial representation that I saw, I would even have wanted to try to step into this, this industry. On the opposite side, what are some of the biggest challenges you see facing the industry right now?
1: Oh, 100% I would say training of setters. You know, Mm -hmm. we have far too many gyms. Um, I won't say we have far too many gyms. Too many gyms is a good thing, but we don't have enough qualified setters to man these gyms. The gyms are opening at a much faster rate than our trained setters are there. And we just don't have that many people that can run setting programs. You know, the gyms are getting larger, which means larger teams. Some of the more talented and, and skilled setters are cherry-picking jobs and bouncing back and forth from one location to another, which kind of leaves a void to where a lot of these newer gyms just don't have qualified setters.
0: I know that you said you wanted to talk on education. We're going to come back on that topic later because I'm super interested, and I know our (laughs) listeners are interested too. But on the evolution side of route setting, what are some of the trends that you've seen come and go, or maybe something that seemed ridiculous at the time has now become a staple of the industry?
1: Well, movement styles, for sure. In the old days, you know, like I alluded to earlier, if you're going to set something difficult, it was generally very small holds, either really bad slopers or very small crimpers. It was usually kind of jumpy and powerful and and much more dynamic and recruitment-based where now you can set, you know, double-digit boulders or, or 514 roped climbs with absolute jugs if you know what you're doing. And that just wasn't the mentality back then. I mean, obviously, the obvious target for this question would be parkour-type movement and compi-type mm-hmm. movement. We're all very familiar with it now, but a few years back when the Germans and Austrians and the Swiss climbers started to propose this, it was new and exciting and fresh, and it made sense to the spectators it was more engaging visually. And so I think it's just kind of stuck around. Some people would call it gimmick. I don't think it does. I think it's valid. I don't think I want everything to be that way. But you know, I think that's where we are currently uh, from a competition standpoint anyway. But I think that there's still a lot of room for other movement styles, whether that be just techie trainers or you know, hold type ladders that will get you used to pulling on crimps or pockets or slopers or pinches or whatever that might look like. Yeah, I think movement style.
0: And in your experience with hold shaping and knowing the hold shaping industry side of route setting, what are some of the trends there that you're seeing come and go, or if there is any that's, you know, materialized and disappeared over the years in hold shaping?
1: It kind of depends. I guess there's lots of different ways to answer this. Um, I live in tin sleep and climb mostly these days in tin sleep. So there's a lot of pockets. So you know, I'm happy to climb on pockets and train on pockets and it's beneficial for my outdoor climbing where a lot of people look at pockets as being injurious and dangerous and potentially career-ending. Um, so a lot of people choose not to spend, spend time setting with pockets. But for me, I like them. One thing that we're in the midst of now is the holds are getting really, really big. We're seeing more and more screw-on features, whether that's fiberglass or polyurethane or or even wooden. Volume type shapes, but I think that that's probably going to change in the near future. I don't think they can get a whole lot bigger without being cost prohibitive. As a shaper, it used to be. Let's go back 15 years or so. A big hold would be maybe called an XL or two XL now, and those were big enough, I thought. And then you know a couple of companies. I guess I'm partly to blame. You know, I did a lot of shipping Mm -hmm. for Kingdom and Voodoo, and they had really big holds. It seemed like for a while there, every company that came out had to have a bigger hold to get people's attention. Here we are a decade later and all of the holds are big. I question how valid that is. I like climbing on big holds. there's fun. That 3D element and that compression component of climbing is fun and it's very easy to get that with big holds. But for smaller gyms that don't have a good hold budget, they're kind of priced out of that type of setting. I also question just how usable or how translatable the skill of pulling on these big, giant volumes is when really we only have four fingers. You know How many fingers can we fill <laughs> those giant volumes? That's not to say that I'm trying to poke fun or say that, that they aren't valuable. I think they certainly are. I, I think that we're just seeing a lot of it right now. And my yeah. expectation is that that's going to start to dwindle and go away.
0: Yeah, I think big holds definitely do a lot for the aesthetic side of things. You can very easily put up a beautiful route that everybody wants to climb on, regardless of the grade. You say that you think that the trend might be going away from big holds. Is that correct?
1: I just think that people are going to start exploring other things. Shift back towards just pure rock climbing. I think Mm -hmm. we're already starting to see it. You know, every event usually tries to find the best setter or sorry, best climber that comes to that event. It's not just the person that can run and jump or, or grapple big features. It's the person that can dance across a very delicate slab. And so you'll always see something like that in the World Cup events or, or the bigger um, roped events. The walls have enough terrain change to where you can cater to all these different talents and skill sets. I think we're going to start seeing a pushback towards some of that, a little mm-hmm. bit more techie climbing. Bit more small, ticky tacky movement climbing instead of these big explosive moves. I think we're still going to have that for sure. I think it's here to stay. But I think right now that's the dominating style of movement that we see. And my guess is that's going to start changing a little bit.
0: I can't say that I would be disappointed if it moved more towards techie climbing. I really like it myself. And as an outdoor climber, it's sometimes the things that I go and look for in the gym, but everyone has their own preferences. Are there any trends out there right now that you're really keeping an eye on or something that made you raise an eyebrow?
1: Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, (laughs) probably nothing I'm prepared to talk about just yet, but there's a few things (laughs) I've seen very, very recently in the last couple of weeks. I'm just curious to see how long they last. I guess the easiest way is I, I, I try and be a pretty diplomatic person. Ask me a month from now, and I'll gladly tell you whether I was right or wrong. And if I was wrong, I'll openly admit it. But there's a few <laughs> things coming to the market right now that I'm just not sure how well they're going to be received.
0: I'm definitely we'll see. seeing trends. I don't know what's a good way to put it. Maybe look prettier on Instagram than in real life. I know with the side of setting that's very heavily focused on aesthetics, a part of it is to showcase that climb or the movement to a wider range of audiences that might not be there to see it in person. So. I think, I hope that trends are here to try to evolve setting, to go towards a direction that is new and interesting. And I really hope that people continue to push that barrier. But it's definitely things that make me raise an eyebrow.
1: Before we get away from that, I, I think one thing that I didn't really touch on it a whole lot when you asked before, but you were talking about the value of having different setters on the team, you know, mm-hmm. whether that be gender or, or size or whatever that might be. I'm a really big proponent of diversity in what a gym has up on the wall at any given time, whether that's in a boulder or a circuit or rope climbing area. But I think what we're talking about now, you know, the big holds, the different styles and, and flavors of the month, if you will, mm-hmm. they can kind of get overplayed a little bit. And I think you lose some of that diversity. And mm-hmm. having that diverse team whether that be body size or someone that's really good at techie balance climbing, someone else that's maybe really good at just grabbing and pulling really hard, someone else that's really good at that parkour jumpy style. I think a very well-rounded team has all of that. And historically, a lot of people will say, oh, well, get a female setter. You're going to have someone in that's really good at techie climbing. And I think that that's kind of a, a cop-out. You know, I know a lot of guys that can't, aren't very powerful at all, but they can balance their way up the slab. And I know plenty of super powerful women. so. I think it's a cop out to pigeonhole people like that, but I do think that there's a huge amount of value in having people of different sizes, people of different genders, people of different outdoor experience, or you know, someone that brings a different mindset to the setting approach. Uh, especially, you see in the forwarding process all the time, people throw out random ideas, and the more diverse those ideas are, the better you're going to better chance you'll have of hitting the target of what you're trying to set.
0: Mhm, I agree with that. I think. Hiring someone who doesn't, who isn't widely represented in the industry, I think can become a check just to tick a box. Hey, we have this setter who doesn't look like everyone else in the industry, but they mm-hmm. often forget to actually include that voice into the setting team. What are some advices that you can give a headsetter or mentor or leader of the industry to try to steer away from boxing people into a specific style?
1: I think it really comes down to Having honest communication, first of all, with yourself, so you know what your strengths and weaknesses are. But if I was running a, a setting team, which I don't anymore, I've, I've been a headsetter many times in the past, but I'm not currently affiliated with a gym. But I would certainly, if I was in that position nowadays, I'd be talking to my team all the time, mm-hmm. having deep debriefings. During the forwarding process, taking a look and see who's doing what, who's struggling at certain types of climbing, who's really dominating at, at that one thing. Maybe it's time to give them a different assignment and force them out of their comfort zone or force them to mentor someone that's struggling in the area that they are very, very proficient at. I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding as to what the head role should be. It's a management position. You're managing a team. And sometimes the person who's the head setter shouldn't necessarily be the best setter on, on the team they, in my mind, should be the best people person on the team. They're yeah. the one that understands how to talk to people. They're the one that understands how to give criticism to where someone will take it and listen and not shut down and think they're feeling, feeling attacked. To go back to what you just said, I, I think there's a lot of performative action out there right now. I think a lot of people are just saying, oh, I need to get whatever it is. I need to get a person of color on my squad or I need to get a female setter or the gym down the street just made a post. They've got three setters that are female and four setters of men. We have to have four females so that we can beat them. Or And I think that that's kind of not the way it should be. You know, You're doing it for the wrong reasons. I think that everyone needs to take a step back and and see the value that that person has outside of their gender, outside of their color, outside of whatever other box you want to put them in. If they're a good setter and they bring something to the team that isn't already on the team, then they're they're valid.
0: Yeah, that's what really well said. I like that. Thank you. I also want to talk about the professionalization of the industry. People will say that, oh, obviously root setters will benefit from a more standardized industry with rules and things that can make the job safer, make the job more sustainable. Other than root setters, who do you think will benefit from the professionalization of this, the setting industry?
1: First and foremost, the industry. I mean, by making something safer, obviously, you have less worker comp claims. You have you know, less uh, time off if someone gets injured. I mean, there's all these types of things. If, if someone gets hurt, it just puts that much more work on their, on their peers and the other people on the team. But I think if you go the opposite, and we're talking about negatives right now, but if you go the opposite end of the scale and everything's just firing on all cylinders and there's good quality climbing being put up on the wall and it's very diverse and there's a a repeatable expected quality when someone walks into the gym, Mm -hmm. then it's the business itself that's going to win. The members of that facility, the people that travel through and, and say, okay, I've got seven gyms I can go to, which one should I visit? Oh, this one seems to have a really good setting. Oh my gosh, it's really good setting that's how they're going to benefit. The gym market nowadays is not, it's not a little mom and pop thing wherever people are getting together, 15, 20 people climbing. It's hundreds and hundreds of people on a busy night. And if you aren't giving those folks what they expect to find when they come into the gym, they're going to go somewhere else. So it's not just a matter of us developing the setters for the development of the setters benefit. It's also the job that we have. Like we're charged with creating and providing a product that checks all these boxes of what people are looking for when they come to the gym. And if we aren't able to do that, why are we even doing it? That's our job.
0: Exactly. That's really well said. I think a lot of gyms out there may overlook the self-care of setters or not think about the the benefits that a setter might need, like physical therapy. So that's something Mm -hmm. that I think a lot of people should be thinking about or trying to build into their program. I think this is a good time to switch gears and talk about setting education. I often joke that setting as a profession has left the infancy and toddler stage and is going through a moody teenager stage with a lot of (laughs) growing pains. Um, The industry is growing very fast. And like you said, the demand for talented setters is growing with the explosion and conglomeration of climbing gyms in the U.S., Right now, aside from USAC certification, there isn't quite a standardized track for setters to measure their progress on. The education of new setters are largely falling on the shoulders of head setters or even the setters themselves to figure it out. How do you think this is going to affect the industry going forward?
1: I think if things don't change, we're going to plateau. People are going to age out. I'll put myself in that box. I've been setting for almost 40 years now. I'm not a full-time setter anymore. I, I tend to just set for you know contract gigs or, or new gyms or things like that. So I think that as people age out, if you will, the burden is there for them to give back to the industry that treated them well all this time. And mm-hmm. I think if you are willing to share that information and, and pass it on and help take it to the next level, we're going to get stuck at whatever the last level was. There's not a lot, as you mentioned, there's not really a lot of infrastructure right now for people to, oh, I'm just going to take the next class because I really enjoyed that last class and it leads right into the, the next level up or whatever that might look like. There's nothing like that from a commercial standing setting standpoint. You can take USAC's level programs, you know, one, two, maybe even sometimes three can still be fairly relevant with takeaway information for gym setting. But beyond that, it becomes much more focused on competitions. I think that the setter that wants to really improve, they have to really work for it right now. You have to look for clinic opportunities. You have to listen to podcasts like this or watch videos or, or whatever it might be. But there's no one place where you can just go and get all of that information. You have to mm-hmm. kind of hunt and search. I'd like to see that change. Uh, yeah. I know a lot of other people would too, but it's a big task to try and build an equivalent program that's focusing on gym setting.
0: If you enter any other trade, you can generally go to a trade school and you'll spend a yes. year or two in that education, just learning the niche you know, specifics of that trade. What are some things that leaders or mentors of the industry can do right now to try to solve that, this problem in their local community?
1: Well, I think that they actually need to act as mentors. You know, If they're going to call themselves mentors, that takes some action. Just sitting back and, and finding fault and, and not doing anything about it doesn't help solve the problem. There's a lot of folks out there that have a lot of knowledge that they've accrued over the years, and and that's very, very valuable. And whether they choose to monetize it and and start doing clinics and things like that, that's up to them. But it doesn't have to go that road. They can just go down to the local gym, or if they're still actively setting, they can take a couple younger setters under their wing and start passing that information along. The industry, what you said earlier about the toddler analogy, I don't know that we're (laughs) even adolescents yet, to be honest. Um, (laughs) I think that we might be might be graduating from from grammar school at this point. Uh, I think that there's a, a lot of learning left to do. I think we've come a long ways if you look back to when I started, but at the end of the day, we haven't really come that far. I imagine if we could somehow hop in a time machine and look at setting 20 years from now, it's going to look drastically different. And it's not mm-hmm. going to be a linear, linear change. I think we're going to start exponentially really taking leaps and bounds. For that to happen, I think the folks that... I've kind of got dialed at the level that we're at now and need to start sharing that.
0: Looking back, who were some of your biggest mentors and influences to your work? What is something they did or taught you that changed the game for you?
1: No one immediately comes to mind, to be honest, just because, like I mentioned, when, when I first started setting, it was at the beginning of gyms. So there wasn't really someone that would be up there on the pedestal that everyone looked towards and tried to emulate. That's not to say that people don't have an impact, for sure. I, I think everyone I set with, to some degree, teaches me something. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's just that you know, I'm doing it the right way and and they aren't. <laughs> and sometimes mm-hmm. it's, it's something that, hey, I never thought about approaching it that way that that has value. So there's lots and lots of those people along the ways. So I would say that some of the first people that maybe I, I looked to were some of the earlier USA climbing setters. You know, you know Molly Beard, Lance Hadfield... Tony Nero was a Southern California guy. I grew up in Southern California, so I got to work with Tony a little bit. I traveled a fair amount climbing and was fortunate enough to run into Jackie up early on. And, you know, he had a fun approach to setting. Uh, mm-hmm. It didn't seem like work. So I, that spoke to me. I would say maybe, now that I'm thinking about it as I'm talking, probably some of the folks that stood out the most weren't necessarily leaders in the industry. They were just people that, I felt were peers, and they treated me with respect, and made me feel like what I brought to the table had value. Mm-hmm. I've always kind of struggled with imposter syndrome. Like even as long as I've been doing this, you know, if I stand in front of a crowd at a certain showdown or a a setting course or something like this, I still question who am I to be doing this, you know. And the folks that had the biggest impact on me were the ones that validated the skill set that I had and made me feel like it was valuable and worth sharing, and To name names, I'd say, you know, Mountain Health was a friend early on that gave me support. Uh, Tonde Cotillo, lots of people, Chris Danielson, lots of folks that had already kind of made it, if you will, um, Mm -hmm. a little bit more than I had. Just took the time to talk to me and and validate what I was doing and how I wanted to do it.
0: I like that take on things. I think the imposter syndrome you talked about, a lot of people feel that in the setting world and Whether you be an experienced setter or a beginner setter, sometimes all it takes is just sit down with your peers and talk about it. It doesn't have to be a mentor situation. It could just be a good conversation between coworkers, colleagues, and friends that can help take someone to a different level. And you might not even know that you're doing it at the time. It's just being human and being vulnerable and talking about this odd but wonderful job that we all do. You mentioned clinics. How long have you been hosting setting clinics?
1: Oh, gosh, a long time. <laughs> I, don't really, I don't really know, to be honest. I mean, when I got involved in it fairly early on just because we needed setters. Grew up in Southern California, and I don't live there anymore. But at the time I left, there were I owned a large bouldering gym there with my wife. And within an hour of our facility, there were 15 other facilities. We had a lot of setters uh, in our area and as those gyms started to be built we needed new setters so mm-hmm. that tra- that introduced this training need and at the time i was one of the more experienced or qualified folks to lead those courses so i just started doing it and actually to go back to tande um it was like a classroom experience when i taught those before and looking back on it i have a lot of regret because i feel like i from the beginning i should have handled things differently and they invited me to come up to Montreal and be a part of a, a multi-day course he was doing up there. And I got to lead a certain portion of it. And watching how he approached it has fundamentally changed how I teach things. You've been to a couple of my events before. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to... I intentionally don't ever say that, that I'm teaching a course. Gotcha. Uh, I prefer to say that I'm leading a course. I've got bullet points or, or topics that I want to make sure that we discuss but there's a lot of groups discussion. I'm up there more as a facilitator is the way I look at it. I'm mm-hmm. making sure that we hit all the key points that I, I want to touch on, but I'm really largely standing back and just letting the conversation go where it needs to go. Mm-hmm. If everyone in the group feels like they've already got a topic dialed, there's no sense spending another half an hour on it. Let's move on. Or if someone's really struggling with a topic, well, then I might pair them on an exercise with someone that seems to be getting it and you know, it goes back to that head setter mentality that I was talking about earlier. I think you're just massaging the group and, and trying to put people where they can be the most effective and beneficial.
0: I really like that approach. And it, whether it be in a setting clinic or your everyday workday and setting, it's just to kind of look at what people need and whether that be the members or the setters and dialing the day to fit that need. In the many years that you've been hosting a set in clinics, do you see a big demographic change from the attendees when you first started versus now?
1: Yes. What are some of the
0: biggest changes?
1: I think just diversity and the people that are showing up. It used to be, it was just like I would, you know, strong cis white males, you know, it's just, Mm -hmm. you know, the people that kind of ruled the industry for a long time back then. To some degree, because those folks are the ones that are more experienced now, they still kind of are at the reins in lots of ways. And over the last, I'd say, five to 10 years, especially, almost annually, I'm seeing more and more um, minority groups or or more and more female setters. I would say the first 10 or 12 setter showdowns that we did, for instance, Mm -hmm. there weren't any female setters at all. I hope it wasn't because I had created an environment that they didn't feel welcome. I just think the industry had created an environment where they didn't feel welcome. Mm -hmm. And I think that the industry has taken steps and there's been missteps along the way. But I think for the most part, the industry has taken solid steps to try and make things more open and inclusive. And I have certainly seen that as far as who's signing up for events.
0: Yeah, I'm really liking the increased trend of more diversity in commercial gyms especially, and I'm hoping that that is going to spill over into the competition scene, especially in the highest levels of setting. I want to see more different faces and more different voices.
1: It's going to take a little bit of time for people to work up through the ranks. You know, so much of that, and this is a whole other topic, but In a nutshell, you know, there's not that many opportunities to set high-end competition events versus how many people there are out there qualified to do it. And then there's also this mentality, which I can't necessarily say it's even wrong, but I think there's also this mentality that if you're the chief of a a big event and there's a lot riding on this event, maybe it's a World Cup or a national or something like this or a high-level qualifier, you kind of want to make sure that your team is someone that you know that they can deliver. They're Mm kind of known they're a known commodity in the industry. And Mm -hmm. it takes a while for people to get onto that list. You know, it's still very much, and this has a negative connotation, but I'm going to say it anyway, it's still very much a a who do you know situation. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't go back to nepotism or favoritism. It's like I said, you've got a job to do and you want to put together the team that you know can deliver. And I think, unfortunately, the people that are qualified in these different affinity groups or gender groups or, or racial groups that could certainly deliver a solid event, they just aren't getting those opportunities yet as often as they ought to. And I think the more mid-level events, um, divisionals, regionals, things like that, that, that these particular setters do, they're going to get more on people's radar. I think, unfortunately, the onus is kind of on those setters to to push their own Agenda and make themselves more visible, and say, "Hey, here I am, and look what I just did. I can play with the best of you. You know, give mm-hmm. me a chance." And then hopefully they get that chance, and then that will open the doors for someone else. But we're starting to see more and more in the World Cups, especially. I've seen female chiefs recently, last several years. I've certainly seen a lot more female setters on teams for large events. I think that that trend is starting to gain traction, which is great to see. But I don't think it's going to happen overnight.
0: I agree with that. My personal advice on the visibility side of things is that if no one's opening the door for you, just kick it down.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. if you're qualified, I don't care who you are, whether you're you know a woman of color or a queer setter or pick your group and it applies. If you don't get an opportunity that you feel you want to pursue and you feel you're qualified for, to some degree, you have to be your own best advocate and you have to make that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's just, you know, trying to guess that as much as you can, or or posting a bunch of content online, or there's lots of different ways you can approach this visibility and, and, you know, gaining the the notoriety that you deserve. But you said it perfectly. If no one's going to give you the opportunity, you kind of have to make the opportunity.
0: Exactly. I want to go back to the clinics for a second. Uh, in, and also on the same topic of evolution of setters, are you seeing any sort of a skill difference in the setters attending the clinic? Like, let's say, is the ceiling raising or is the floor getting uh, higher up there? I'm not yeah, sure if that's definitely. the way to put it.
1: I know what you're getting and I definitely have. In fact, I keep mentioning the setter showdown just because it's on my mind right now because we've got one next week. But especially because that's kind of a a quasi-competition environment, you tend to get people that show up to those events that already feel like they're of a certain caliber uh, for mm-hmm. the most part. And I can tell you without a doubt that in the whatever it's been 10 years or so that we've been doing these things, it's much, much higher.
0: Mm-hmm. than
1: average, average skill set now, I wouldn't even say that. I would say the lowest skill set of the people that are at the events now are the people that a decade ago might have won. It's come a long, long ways. The base skill level and just general under uh, awareness of things and understanding of all the technical aspects—it's much, much higher than it used to be.
0: Huh. I'm glad to hear that. It's the setting industry—it's continuing to grow and change. Just as a setter, what are some advice that you can give to setters who want to further their own education but don't quite know how?
1: No oh, gosh, it's tough. You know I touched on it earlier, but you know keep your ears to the ground. There's lots of forums. Facebook has a, a few different ones, some for the general public and some there are more for affinity groups or, or gender groups. But you know f- find those, become members, become that nerd that checks your feed every day before you go to bed or when you first wake up or whatever, because sometimes those opportunities come and they fill up before you even know about them, whether that be a clinic or you know who knows where it might be a, a setting opportunity. I would say watch as many of the, the videos online as you can. There's several people that have posted, especially during the pandemic, people started doing different videos on how to set this type of movement or how to set that type of movement. And there's several different groups of those videos out there that you can watch. There's a couple of books you know out there in the U.S. and also in Europe. And there's another one that just came out in Spain. It's, there's no English translation yet, but I saw that book recently, and it's very well written lots and lots of blogs and things online again unfortunately you have to mine for it it's not really easy to find sometimes but the content is there uh, you just need to seek it out beyond that i would say guest setting is huge for me get yourself out of your familiar gym you know, work with different people work with different holds on different angles that maybe you aren't used to setting on and all of that comes from guest setting you know mm-hmm. if you're on vacation or you're gonna be sort of road trip and you want to maybe set while you're there take the time ahead of time to find out what gyms are in the area reach out and say hey i'm a setter what days you guys set? are you interested in just having me come and set for half a half day and not necessarily even looking to get paid although i wouldn't start with that you know i think that <laughs> I, everyone that works for me gets compensated and, and you know that's just me trying to walk the talk i guess but sometimes you do have to just serve a little internship and, and show up and set for a few hours at no compensation but see that there's value in that still for you, just being exposed to different ideas.
0: Personally, I definitely have mixed feelings about setting for free. I know that being able to work for free is an immense privilege. It's not something that everyone can do. So if you can, go get after it. If you can't, there's scholarship opportunities out there. There's affinity groups that are offering clinics for free or at a severely discounted rate. And sometimes just poke your local head setter and just keep poking them and bugging them until they give you a chance to put something on the wall.
1: Yeah, especially if you're currently working as a setter, then it, then it all starts in your own gym. Volunteer to to come in at, at whatever their pay scale is and, and work as an apprentice or, or help doing the stripping or help washing holds. Or, I mean, sometimes you have to do those non glory glamorous jobs to get your foot in the door. But yeah, I'm with you. Like I, I mentioned, there's something about working for free if you have to. And that's a slippery slope because once someone sees you as being willing to do that, it's kind of hard then to level up and demand mm-hmm. a wage. You know, a lot of times back in the old days, you know, the setters didn't compensate. Maybe you got a free membership and that was it. And at the time, maybe that was good enough. But I think those days have come and gone and mm-hmm. it shouldn't be the norm anymore.
0: Absolutely. Louis, the last topic I want to talk to you about is the Setter Showdown itself. I know our audiences really want to hear about community building in the setting world. With the current trends, we're seeing a lot of affinity groups pop up, like Bolt and Revolt is a relatively new one that's doing really well. Climbing competitions set for and by underrepresented setters, like Women Up, have been going on for a hot minute. Well climbing has gone mainstream in the last decade or so, we're still a niche sport compared to something like the NFL or the NBA. So setters is a niche community within a niche community. And aside from setters knowing each other, community building can be really hard. We know that the demand is out there the trends show it. And the showdown, correct me if I'm wrong, is as much a community building event as it is a setting competition. For the listeners who don't know what the showdown is, can you tell us a little bit about it?
1: Sure. I don't know how far you want me to go back. But the current iteration is, I try and describe it as trade development under the guise of a competition. It wasn't always that way. It started out being very much a competition. It was something I helped organize originally with my friend uh, Mountain Health, was a high level USAC setter for quite some time and now works as a head setter up at a gym in Reno. But he and I were approached by a climbing hold company that was looking to launch their company. And they wanted to launch their company in a way that hadn't been done before. So they pitched the idea of some sort of a route setting event or competition. And this perfectly coincided with some conversations I had been having with Mountain. So we sat down and kind of came up with the first one. And it basically, we invited a bunch of setters from the Southern California region that came in having no idea what to expect. There were 900 brand new shapes from a old company that no one had ever seen before, Mm -hmm. in a gym that they had never set in before, and they had to set a series of older problems with different expectations, and we judged them on it. It was nothing but a competition. After the event, both Mountain and I, I think, it kind of left a bad taste in our mouth. And to be honest, the industry didn't really accept it. There was a lot of pushback on, well, how can you compete on this? It's such a creative endeavor. How do you judge it? What criteria do you have? to make these judgment calls. And, and all of that spoke to me and rang true. And so ever since then, I've been trying to diminish the competitive aspect. We have a group of setters, depending on the size of the gym, it might be as few as 14 or 16, all the way up to 40. And you come in and you work with folks that you've never worked with before, with holds that maybe you've never seen before in an environment that you've never been in before. You can't pick your holds. You can't pick the wall you're setting on. We take all of that control out of the setter's hands intentionally just to kind of throw them off their game and see what they have to offer. We still judge, there's still prizes. That's kind of what makes it work for the sponsors and for the setter, or for the community that might be watching it. But inside the event, there's a lot more conversations going on exchange of information. Oh, how do you do this back at your gym? Oh, well, I'm from Canada and this is how we do it in Canada. Oh, that's great. I'm from England and this is how we do it in England. And just a lot of personal interactions that you won't get otherwise. And I think nowadays that's that's more where the value is. Is mm-hmm. just trade, trade development, networking, either validation of what you're doing currently or exposure to something that might be a better way to approach things. You tell me, you've been to What was your <laughs> takeaway?
0: Oh, I definitely hated one of the holds you that you gave me. I was like, I hate these holds. I don't quite know how to use them, and I actually broke my arms on this exact set of holds.
1: So. Oh no! <laughs> broken arm, I'll take that as a win. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it definitely put me into a place that I don't quite know and I had to improvise a lot. So if you are thinking about attending a showdown in the future or if you are currently signed up for the upcoming one, that's something that you should be expecting. I didn't expect it on my first showdown, uh, just for some context to the listeners. I've attended two. The first one, I had no idea. I didn't know that it was going to be partner Boulder, So it put me into basically a nervous meltdown for a hot minute there. But in a good way, because it taught me a lot about myself and a lot about the industry and how to approach situations that is not perfect. Not You know, the best laid plans don't always work out and you just have to improvise. And even on a normal commercial setting basis, sometimes you get the bottom of the barrel holds, the holds that no one picked. You just get them. You don't like them. They don't look good. And you have to throw up a boulder or route that functions. So Correct. think about that. And that might be a situation that you are in a showdown. And I think that's probably the biggest takeaway that I got from the showdowns. I would definitely attend more in the future if I get the chance to. You touched on how the idea has evolved over the years for the showdown. Uh, what about the community aspect of the showdown? How has that evolved over the years?
1: We've always had a certain component of it. Our plan, or I should say, our vision for the event. We didn't necessarily achieve it for the first several events. We were just kind of kept nudging things towards where we wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. And I think now it's you know, it's at a place to where I'm I'm kind of happy and more satisfied overall with how things are. I also was on. I also was in the position to where I didn't really feel like it was something that could or should be judged. I wanted to be perfectly honest to take the weight off my own shoulders, you know myself and whoever else is acting as a technical judge. We're making judgments and we're assigning scores on various different criteria that you know varies from judge to judge. But I didn't want all of the weight of the winning being on our shoulders. So Mm -hmm. we have not only the technical judges, which is usually either two or three judges depending on the size of the event. We also have the route setters judge each other, not as Stringently, but they have to pick their favorite. Mm -hmm. So we have the setters voting. Uh, And then we also, from the very beginning, have had a community component to where the setting is done. The setters go away and have a team dinner just to bond that way no one's there watching and seeing what's going on necessarily. The community comes in, they have no idea who set what. They literally are just having a climbing session and finding value in whatever they find value in based on whatever criteria they use. And at the end of the community voting period, they've picked their favorite boulder. And we don't necessarily even know what that, what that is. You know, maybe this is a V7 boulder that really loves slopers, and there was a sloper boulder that was perfectly in his wheelhouse, and it was V7. So that climber might pick the setter just based on that. Someone else might pick a boulder that's just really fun and flowy because that's what they're looking for. It kind of goes back to what I mentioned earlier on. If if you took a census poll as people walk into the gym of why they're there and what they're looking to get out of their session, you'd have answers all across the board. So we were trying to give weight to that opinion as well and have the public pick their favorite. I would say that the best events that we've had so far there's a clear winner in all three categories, meaning Mm -hmm. that the technical judges gave them the highest scores, the public gave them the highest scores, and the setters themselves in the peer review gave that setter the highest scores. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what I envisioned. It doesn't always happen, but that's what I I want to see because Mm -hmm. then there's a very clear-cut winner. For whatever Mm -hmm. reason, that's the setter that people found the most value in what they put on the wall.
0: So as much of the community, you still want the competition element to be there a little bit, just maybe evolve sure. from the original idea.
1: Yeah. A good example would be, you know, earlier on the first year or two that we were doing the showdowns and for background information for the the listeners, this one that we're doing next week is our 20th event. So mm-hmm. it's evolved quite a bit over 20 events, as you can imagine we had huge prizes like the winner just went home with a whole bunch of stuff and everyone else went home, probably wondering what they did wrong. And that's not something that I wanted to reinforce. So about, I don't know, maybe event four or five, we started offering debriefings. That way all of the judges would sit down with the setters one-on-one, perfectly anonymity. No one else is listening we can be as brutally honest as you want us to be, but we'll give you something that you can take away. Uh, what you did well, what you didn't do as well as as maybe you could have. And here's some, some steps that maybe you could take to develop and broaden those skill sets where you're struggling. And that started being a lot more valuable to the folks that did not get the prizes. We also have really diminished the prizes. Um, it's not... You aren't going home with a whole bunch of stuff. There's a, a silly little vinyl trophy that we that we make up and and you might get some credit you know with a couple of the whole company sponsors and that's about it mostly it's just bragging rights and that's more the way i want it to be holding someone up on a pedestal especially if all of the other participants look to that person as being the best setter in the event i think holding someone on a pedestal does have some value because it helps the folks that aren't quite there yet have something to shoot for. They can go home and be, be really reflective on what that particular setter did well and what mm-hmm. maybe they want to try and emulate and make part of their own setting program. So I think the competitive aspect is still good. I just don't want that to be the main focus.
0: I kind of look at it like if you go to an art gallery, there might be a piece that everyone's standing around, but it doesn't make everything else in the art gallery any less valuable. Just Correct. because people are crowded around one piece. Everything has its value and its artistic expression in its own right. And I, I do think that a setter showdown expresses that in a very uh, valuable way. Having sat through two of the debriefings, the first one I was just, I told you, just tell me everything. Don't bubble wrap it. And you did. And yep. Yep. I took away a lot of it. You said that I needed to be more of a risk taker and I did it and it helped. So sometimes it is about sitting down and having a really brutally honest conversation with someone who's a veteran in the field.
1: It's really easy. I think for setters, especially experienced setters, which I would definitely put in that boat. It's very easy to go into the gym and grab the holds that you like and go to the wall angle that you're familiar with and comfortable climbing on and in a grade range that's in your wheelhouse and put up, just a banger. Every day you can do it. But when you start having to set an easier boulder that maybe you're not so psyched on or, or a long roped route and you aren't really a rope climber, maybe you're a boulderer, these struggles become more magnified. So what we do in the setter showdown a lot, I already mentioned, is taking you out of that comfort zone. But I think that that needs to happen in the setting environment too. Uh, mm-hmm. In gyms, you know, the head setter, in my opinion, should constantly be putting you out of your comfort zone. I think that when you're out of that comfort zone, that's where you start either taking the risks and making efforts to learn and get better or not. And maybe that's where you find out if this is the profession for you or not. Because Mm -hmm. no matter what you do or no matter what you're good at, if you do that every day for however many days or years or months that is, you're going to burn out. You need to be more diverse. You need to have a a broader skill set. Maybe someday you go in there and you just have block and You have no idea where to start. Just go in the back and grab some holds to speak to you and, and maybe talk to your head setter and say, Hey, you know, I'm not really feeling it today. Can you give me some assignments or something to focus on or give me a jumping off point? Or maybe I don't even feel like setting today. Is there something else? Can I organize the hold room today? Just be honest and, and talk to your head setter and, and tell them what you're struggling with. And, and hopefully you've got the right person above you to where they'll listen to that and they'll facilitate it a good positive reinforcing day for you to where the next day you come in, you're psyched and you hit the ground running.
0: I like that. That's great advice for setters or head setters out there. Just step out of your comfort zone or help someone step out of their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. I still remember the first time I got an assignment to set a knee bar. And at that point, I'd never set a knee bar, even used it that much in my own climbing. I went into the bathroom, pulled out YouTube and tried to find videos (laughs) of knee bars and I want every setter to go through that experience. Maybe not hiding in a bathroom and looking up knee bars, but...
1: Yeah, maybe not that part.
0: (laughs) Yeah, not that part. But, you know, just set something that you don't normally set or climb. And and Mm -hmm. yeah, I like that. What is something that keeps you doing the showdown year after year?
1: I really like seeing the impact that it has on people. I like to see people have that aha moment, you know, maybe they're working on. We always have at least one partner around because I think it's really important for people to learn to work with someone that they're not comfortable with. There's always a power struggle, you know, someone's usually steamrolling the other person, someone else is just folding under the pressure. You know, that's the worst example of it. But hopefully, more often than not, people kind of rise to the occasion and find a way that work as equals. And I think even, you know, we're talking about route setting, but this goes far beyond that. This is just being a decent human, you know, being able to work with people that are different from you and have different ideas and different viewpoints. I think it just if you can get to where you do that, you're going to win no matter what you do. It just helps in setting as well. So I enjoy seeing that. To be perfectly honest, it's a way for me to stay relevant. You know, I'm not really a full-time setter anymore. I've been setting a long time. I can still go out there and, and, and do it. You know, I do a lot of consults every year for new gyms or competitions or, or whatever. So I still definitely am out there with my hand on the drill and, and getting things done. And I can do it. But this is a way to help me feel like I'm having an impact. Feel like I'm so relevant as a route setter. Like I mentioned earlier, I, I've kind of aged out in my mind and I'd be the first to admit that. But it's a way that I can still give back and kind of help direct what the next generation of setters might look like. What I'm leaving behind and, and the legacy that comes behind me is a big part of where I'm at. You know, I'm I'm 56 now, so I'm getting up there for sure as far as route setters go. And I'm starting to think a lot more about those types of things, like what I'm leaving behind. And I think that this is just something that has been well responded to. I think most of the folks that have participated in the events have found, have found value in one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And that's hugely rewarding for me to know that I had a hand in that. I think it's also a way for folks to uh, maybe get re-energized. maybe they're kind of getting burned out in their home gym environment and here they get to go out of town or maybe even out of the country sometimes and, and meet all these cool new people and, and create this broad network of, of new folks that they can talk to or road trip with, or maybe even guest at and, and get in the competition setting environment with that they wouldn't have known otherwise. Like you're exposed to different ideas. Just all of these types of things have value. And it's just yeah, a cool yeah. thing. It's a cool thing. And to be honest, you know, I still learn things all the time watching people. I see people, I give them some holds. And you know, we try really hard when we're making the hold assignments not to screw people. We will sometimes give you jugs on a slab or slopers on a steep wall just to kind of see what you do. We try and always make sure that there's a vehicle in there for you to succeed. Like we aren't trying to set you up for failure by any means. But I can tell you that sometimes when we do that and the right setter comes and they take a look at the, the holds and you can see it in, in their face. They're like, oh, I got this. Watch mm-hmm. out, everybody. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to own this. And, and they end up setting this boulder that's just earth shattering almost it's like how the hell did you pull that off with these holes on that <laughs> angle at the end of the day i'm a setting geek and a whole geek like anyone else you know i love seeing those moments and, and seeing what kind of cool things people can do with what we give them
0: that's a cool way to look at the showdown i really like it i never really thought about it from the behind the scene perspective
1: that's a lot of grinding to be honest in fact the last couple of events brought this even more home to me i've been a judge at every event just because it's something that i i organize but Some of the folks that have done quite well, especially if someone wins something once, I probably will not be real psyched to have them come back because I feel like they've already learned what they need to learn from the event. So if they want to remain involved in the event, usually I'll invite them to be a judge. I'll take care of their travel and their lodging and, and pay them a daily rate. And like I said earlier, everyone that works on one of my projects gets compensated. So I just pivot them into a different role. And without a doubt, and without exception, all of those people come back up to me afterwards and say, that was really hard. This is hard to look at someone in a judgmental way. And I think it forces you to kind of break down the setting activity in your own world too and say, okay, well, there's all these little micro components to setting that I hadn't ever really verbalized anymore in my mind. Mm -hmm. You just take these things for granted. And when you have to be judgmental and analytical and and split the field, if you will, on what this person is doing versus what that person is doing in this situation, It makes you really think about your own approach to setting.
0: Well, Louis, I think I can talk to you all day, but we are nearing the end of uh, our session. There's so many topics that we can talk about. Well, I hope this podcast runs long enough that I can invite you back and we can talk about something else. To end the session, I kind of want to ask what are you looking forward to seeing in the industry in the coming years? What's something that makes you really excited?
1: I want to see setters get their due, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of setters are out there just grinding away day after day in the trenches doing often what is a thankless job and they're not really getting the attention or, or credit or compensation or anything else that they deserve i think that certain gyms out there especially some of the bigger chains they value their setters quite well they pay them well they give them time off they give them The support, whether that be yoga or or PT or whatever that might look like in their situation, some gym chains get it. Most Mm -hmm. of the gym chains don't. There's a lot of setters up there that are severely underpaid. There's a lot of talented setters that want to get better, that don't have the opportunities to learn and grow. There's a lot of groups of folks out there that don't feel validated in wanting to be a setter. I want to see everyone that has the desire to be a route setter have a path forward to become a route setter. Mm -hmm. And I want them, once they achieve a certain skill level, to get paid what they're worth. I think we're a long ways away from that. In the rest of my years, that's what I want to see. I think a lot of other things are going to happen organically. We're going to see whatever the cool new movement trend is. We're going to see some funky new holds that no one ever imagined. All those things are going to happen. They're just going to happen organically. But I think that what I really want to see is progression
0: some of the disparities in industry were not intentionally created maybe, but they need to be intentionally changed. Correct. Thank you so much for joining me today, Louis. I really enjoyed talking to you and I hope we can have you back as a guest soon. Yeah. Well,
1: thank you for the opportunity.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode with Louie Anderson. Check us out next time. We'll be back with another episode and another guest soon. If you enjoy what you heard, share this with a friend, tell a coworker, or give us a shout on social media. Thanks again. Until next time.